Amen. Would you grab your Bibles and you grab your seat and open with me to Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13 this morning as we dive into the gospel of Mark. I want you to consider that we live in a world that is largely skeptical of people when they make bold or audacious claims. Now, I think this is probably pretty wise of us because we live in a world where we're constantly being advertised to, constantly trying to be sold on something. Hey, this is the greatest product ever. You definitely want it. And so if we believed all of these claims that were constantly being fed, we would pretty quickly run out of money because we'd have to buy every product that is ever advertised. So we've learned to be somewhat skeptical when someone says, hey, I am the greatest or this is the best when someone makes a bold, audacious claim. If not, we would end up looking like Buddy the Elf in the movie Elf. He's walking past that cafe, a little Greek restaurant, it says World's Greatest Coffee. And he runs in and he's like, congratulations, you did it, and I'm so proud of you. He didn't have any skepticism for that bold, audacious claim. And if we didn't have that skepticism, we'd, we'd look just as foolish. Well, today as we open the Gospel of Mark, Mark is going to begin with a bold, audacious claim. He's going to say something pretty astounding about who Jesus is, about what he can do for you, and about what he means to all people. And so he's going to have to, if we're going to believe him, he's going to have to back it up. And we're going to see that he does. He doesn't just talk, but he shows that he can support this bold, audacious claim. The gospel of Mark, or the gospel according to Mark, was written by, you might hear him called John Mark, other places in the Bible. Uh, He was a Jewish Christian from Jerusalem, John being his Jewish name, Mark being his Greek name. He's the cousin of Barnabas. He's the sometime missionary companion of Paul. And he had a special connection to Peter. We see in 1 Peter 5 that Peter calls John Mark his spiritual son. And so as we read the Gospel of Mark, we should really anticipate that this, that the primary source behind the Gospel of Mark is Peter himself. We just read from 2 Peter, Peter's own words, and he said, We didn't follow cleverly devised myths. These aren't just interesting stories that were made up to teach you a moral. No, this is eyewitness testimony. I saw with my own eyes. I heard with my own ears. God, speak from the heavens. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And so that is the source of this gospel. Now, the word gospel, as we, as we, we're going to talk about that a lot today, but the way I'm using it is kind of in two different ways. First, to talk about a literary genre, which is unique to the New Testament. As a literary genre, a gospel is a theological biography. And what that means is that it is biographical, it is historically reliable, it is based on eyewitness testimony, this is describing real historical events. But it is theological in that it does not describe every aspect of Jesus' life. John, when he was writing his gospel, said, you know, I guess if we wrote down everything Jesus did, all the libraries in the world couldn't contain all those books. 
And so Mark has to carefully choose which aspects of Jesus' biography he's going to include in order to communicate the spiritual message that the Holy Spirit wants to communicate. And so in that sense, it is a theological biography. These true historical stories are teaching us spiritual truths that we want to build our lives on. Mark, we believe, was written in the, the 50s A.D., It's the first of the Gospels written, and we have fragments of Mark dating back to the first century. And so, that being said, we can now turn to this bold, audacious claim that Mark begins his Gospel with. I mean, I guess if you're going to start a book, you might as well start it with a punch, right? So here it is, verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So I really considered preaching this entire sermon just from verse 1 because there's so much in just this, these phrases. But I'm not going to do that. We're going to get through 13 verses, which means I have to talk about verse 1 pretty quickly. But let's talk about three important words or phrases just in this first verse. The beginning of the gospel. So here we're not necessarily talking about a literary genre. Instead, we're using the word a little bit more literally. It is the word... Good news in the original language. In Greek, the word gospel is good news. But it's not a a vague or indistinct good news like, oh, I've got good news. I found $5. You go, okay, well, that's good news. No, the way that this word was used in the ancient world referred to much bigger moments. This word was used a lot whenever there was a big military victory and the the messengers would come running into town. Gospel, gospel, good news. Our army has defeated the enemy. This word gospel was used a lot whenever, let's say, an, an emperor died and a new emperor was placed on the throne. They'd put these posters around town. Gospel, gospel, good news. There's a new emperor. Now, of course, that's, you know, a little bit of propaganda. The new emperor, he's going to be the best, right? He's going to make our lives great. But if nothing else, we know that a new emperor means major changes for how our lives are going to be. If nothing else, we know that the military victory was a kind of salvation for us. That if the enemy had not been defeated, then maybe we were to be defeated. And so this word gospel is referring not to some small or indistinct good news. It is referring to large, major moments. It has a definite political and military connotation for the original audience, meaning this good news is going to change how we live our lives. A military victory over an enemy, that was salvation moment. A new king, a new lord, that is going to change how our lives are arranged and oriented And this is ultimately what Mark is saying about the good news, about the gospel. Saying, get ready for your lives to be transformed by this good news. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're new to the Bible, it would not be a strange assumption to just think of Christ as being Jesus' last name. But if you were to study a little bit more about this word in the Bible, you would learn that it is actually not his last name, but a title. Uh, Christ is a Greek word from the New Testament. We use the very same word in the Old Testament, but it is in Hebrew, Messiah. So Messiah and Christ are the same word in two different languages. So what would the word be in English? It would literally be the anointed one. 
the anointed one. So this is in reference to an ancient practice where uh, anointing someone with oil, pouring a little bit of oil on their head or rubbing a little bit of oil on their forehead was a sign of being chosen. That God, when he chose the kings in the Old Testament, think of David's story. What happened? Samuel comes and he's looking. God has sent him to the house of Jesse. It's going to be one of Jesse's sons. And he looks through his sons and he says, no, this is not the one who God has chosen. There must be another son. Jesse says, well, yeah, there's David, the youngest out in the fields, tending the sheep. We'll bring him in. And then when he brings him in, God confirms to Samuel, this is the one I have chosen to be the king. And so Samuel anoints him with oil. And this is a sign of God's choosing. You are going to be a Messiah. Literally, there are plenty, many of little messiahs throughout the Old Testament. People that God has chosen for a specific time or a specific purpose to rescue his people in some way. So David was a Messiah. He was chosen by God, an anointed one to be the king, so that when the Philistines rose up and, and began to cause problems for the people of God, the, a Messiah, David, as a good king, overthrew that military enemy and provided salvation, a salvation to his people. And so all throughout the Old Testament, we see little messiahs, but we also hear about the Messiah, the Christ. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy saying, there is one coming who will be the Messiah, the chosen one, who will not just rescue you from a specific enemy or be the hero for a certain time or for a certain people. He will be the Messiah, the chosen one, the one sent by God to be the hero, the savior for all people of all time. And so prophecy after prophecy tells us about the Messiah. And then here, Mark says, here he is. Here's the good news. The Messiah that you've been waiting on for thousands of years has come, and his name is Jesus. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the one chosen by God and sent by God to rescue us. He is, to finish out the verse, the Son of God. Now, this phrase communicates something pretty specific to us today. But in the ancient world, this phrase was not as uncommon as you would think. That being called a son of God, not everybody was called a son of God, but more than one person was. Emperors were all called the son of God. Uh, A really great philosopher who had special wisdom would be called a son of God. Other types of heroes who rose up and saved the people would be called a son of God. And what they're saying is that this person has a special favor from God. And so of all these phrases in verse 1, the least specific to Mark's original audience would have been this phrase, Son of God. It would have communicated to them, okay, he has some kind of special favor with God, but I don't know exactly what that means. And so we're going to have to keep reading to understand exactly what Mark meant when he called Jesus the Son of God. But even before we do that, we can already see that Mark has made an audacious, bold claim about who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, that he has a special relationship with God. He's been chosen by God, and this is good news, not just for one person, but for all people, that basically who Jesus is matters to everyone. And so... 
the bold, audacious claim, you could kind of say it like this, is here's the good news. God sent the Son to save all people. So let's go back to the, uh, for the point for verse 1. Here's the good news. God sent the Son to save all people. You're giving away the ending, man. Come on, verse 1. <laughs> Here it is. There we go. Okay. It's, it's no big deal. But that's, that's, that's for verse 1, okay? Uh, God sent the Son to save all people. This is really good news. Don't you love giving good news? Like, nobody wants to be the bearer of bad news, but people are like edging in to be the person who gets to present good news. It was a sincere joy for me last week to stand up here and to announce to our church family that there's a new little McDuffie. Like, that was good news, and I loved to bring that good news to the church. We celebrate, we, we enjoy it. Everybody loves to get good news. It makes me think of a certain historical picture that you might be familiar with. Uh, you can bring it up. There it is. This was taken on August 14th, 1945, on VJ Day, Victory Over Japan Day, the day when it was announced that World War II was over. And so the photographer, he recounts uh, capturing this photograph. People were out in Times Square just celebrating like crazy. Times Square has been blacked out for years now because they didn't want to be a bombing target. And the lights come back on, people are celebrating, and there's this particular sailor, the the photographer noticed, who is giving a kiss to any woman who would allow it as a sign of celebration. The quote is, it didn't matter if she was a grandmother, stout, thin, old, it didn't make a difference. And so he's kind of sees him uh, coming up to this nurse. And the sailor tells the story that he saw that she was a nurse and he had had a couple. And he assumed that she was a a military nurse, that she'd been part of the military effort. And so he wanted to give her a kiss of gratitude. And the nurse sees him coming and they're all celebrating. So she allows the kiss to thank him. Four photographs were taken of this moment. uh, But this was the one where the framing was just perfect. And so all of this is just a celebration of good news. In fact, they recreated the photograph 50 years later. A little less passionate uh, because they're married to different people. Um, (laughs) But what are they doing? They're thinking back to that moment when good news was proclaimed and the people couldn't but help to celebrate. This was very, very good news. But let's put it into perspective in comparison to the good news, the gospel. The toppling of a wicked regime, which ruled by pain and fear, this is certainly good news. But don't you see what God was saying when he sent his son? He was announcing the coming of a new king who could overthrow any wicked nation, who, could, who will overthrow the greatest wicked ruler, which is Satan, the one who rules the world today. And so, this should give us more reason to celebrate than ever before or ever since. I mean, the ending of a war that caused the death of 85 million people, this is certainly good news. But God, in sending His Son, announced the death of death. The end of pain and sorrow. The cure for sin. The the arrival of the hero, not for one people or for one nation, but for all people. 
Because all of us have fallen into sin. All of us have become deserving of the just punishment for sin. And all of us need a rescuer, a hero to rescue us from that. And so what God was saying is, he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, here is the good news. If you would turn from your sin in repentance and turn to Jesus in faith, then he will be the hero, the rescuer, the savior for you. And this is the good news. This is quite the claim, Mark, quite the zinger to open up your gospel with. Well, don't you know that if you make an audacious claim, you have to back it up? Well, Mark did know that, and that's exactly what he did. Apparently, skepticism is not unique to our age. It was the same in in Mark's day. And so he begins with this bold claim, and then the rest of the passage we're going to study this morning is Mark backing up that bold claim. I think we recognize the importance of being able to validate a bold claim. I mean, think about it. The Guinness Book of World Records is a business that takes in $2 million a year just from YouTube ad revenue. So it's an enormous business. What is their business? All they do is validate bold, audacious claims. Well, I can eat more hot dogs standing on my left foot in a blizzard in three minutes than anybody else in the world. Well, that's quite the bold, audacious claim. You're going to have to back it up. And so that's exactly what Guinness Book of World Records does. They make all of their money because they back up bold, audacious claims. Well, We don't have Guinness Book of World Records validating this bold claim about Jesus, but we do have the Word of God validating it. We have eyewitness testimony validating exactly who Jesus was and what he did and what he can do for us. So let's look now at verses 2 through 8. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, okay, that seems like Kind of a hard left turn, but think about exactly what Mark is doing. He's saying, here's this bold claim about who Jesus is. How can I prove it? Well, look at this prophecy in the book of Isaiah, given 700 years before Jesus lived. And then he gives us two prophecies. One is actually from Isaiah and one is from Malachi. And I guess Isaiah being the major prophet, he just gets all the the recognition here. But here are the prophecies. The one from Isaiah given over 700 years before Jesus came to the earth. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. And, and the one from Malachi, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Malachi prophesied 400 years before Jesus lived. And he basically said, there will be one who comes before the Messiah, before this Christ, and the entire purpose of his mission and his ministry will be to prepare people to receive the Messiah, the Christ. And this was given 400 years before Jesus, and then we have silence. No prophet speaks for 400 years. And then in verse 4, the silence is broken. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So John, being the last great Old Testament prophet, appears and his ministry is one of preparation. He's in the wilderness and he's calling people to him to come and to be baptized as a demonstration of repentance. He's wanting the Jewish people to know that it doesn't matter what family you were born into, The Messiah, the Christ, can only save you if you recognize the seriousness of your sin. And so he's helping people to recognize the seriousness of their sins. 
The result is pretty amazing. Verse 5, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John had an enormous ministry. We maybe don't get the full picture of that from Scripture, but there is an ancient historian, a Jewish historian named Josephus, who wrote a history of the Jewish people. I want to say it was around 90 AD, and he recorded the ministry of John the Baptist as part of the history of the Jewish people. That in Acts 19, which is 20 years after Jesus' ministry, there are still disciples of John living in Ephesus, which is 600 miles from where John had his ministry. So John had an enormous ministry. Why is that important? Well, it's because John's ministry is ultimately meant to be an endorsement of Jesus. As we think about like one politician, uh, let's say a former president, says, I endorse this candidate as the next president. You should vote for him. Right? That endorsement only carries weight because of the political standing of that former politician, right? I don't mean this to be ugly, but the mayor of Crestview's endorsement is not po- as politically heavy as a former president, right? So the, the largeness, the grandness of John's ministry is just meant to be that much more of an endorsement of who Jesus is, that much more of a, a validation of this bold claim that Mark made about Jesus. Verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Well, this is pretty bizarre if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, but what he's trying to do is he is intentionally fulfilling the prophecy given about this preparation messenger. In Malachi 4, It was told that the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah would be like a new Elijah. And John is doing things that intentionally associate his ministry with the ministry of Elijah. That's why he's doing these odd things, because people would recognize what he was doing. His intention, if it wasn't clear from his strange outfit, his intention is clear from his message. Look at verse 7. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That he was ultimately saying, all of you who are coming to me, this is what you have to know. My ministry is a ministry of preparation. I want you to be ready to see, to recognize, and to receive the Messiah, the Christ, who is coming. And so this just makes our good news expanded if it wasn't already good enough. First, we saw that the good news is that God sent the Son to save all people. If that wasn't good enough on God's behalf, He does more than that. Because God also prepared the people to receive the Son. God prepared the people to receive the Son, which is the, ver- the, the point we can get from verses 2 through 8. God prepared the people to receive the Son. So if we think about it, how we deliver a message is very important. That's what we're talking about right now. God had this message for the people. Not only did he want to give them good news, but more than that, he even wanted to prepare them to receive that good news. And so how we deliver a message is very important in order to make it to be received in the best way possible. 
Um, there's a, a new trend. It's not that new, actually, maybe five years old at this point, maybe a little bit more than that, in high school, and it's called promposal. You heard of this? Promposal, where, you know, you can't just ask somebody to prom anymore. Now you've got to do some kind of elaborate grand gesture. Unlike what I did, which was I sat behind a good friend of mine in English class, and I thought, eh, she's fun. We'll go. So I reached forward, and I wrote on her note, on her notes in class, you, me, prom. It wasn't very elaborate or grand, and she said no. Um, <laughs> maybe I should have come up with something a little bit uh, with more thought. So that's kind of the whole idea behind these promposals is it's going to make the moment of asking more uh, personal. It's going to show that I put some preparation and some thought into it. If you Google this, it's pretty funny because Sometimes high schoolers aren't that good at thinking of creative things or preparing well. So there's a lot of promposal fails. Here's a good one. Um, this guy made the news uh, because he set a fire in the girl's driveway and then started blaring metal music so that she would come to the window. Uh, so that's, an o- that's a thought. That's an option. Um, and then we have this next one, which I don't really understand at all. It says, if you got to go, go with me. And then you flip up the lid and it says prom. Uh, there are some nice flowers. I don't, I, I don't understand it, but that's what it is, okay? Speaking of flowers, our last one we have here is the guy stuck a bunch of flour in this girl's locker. And it says, I bought you flowers so you will go to prom with me. Which I think is a pretty good pun, but it's a missed opportunity because it's all the same brand. The pun would be better if it was like three different brands of flour because then it would make sense. I bought you flowers, right? So almost. He, he's almost there, okay? So the reason that these promposals are fails is because they aren't personal. Like, you know, if the girl was like into horses, then use a horse somehow. I don't know. Um, and they also didn't really require a lot of preparation. I mean, a little bit of kerosene and a lighter, you're good to go, right? A couple bags of flour, not that hard to track down. So a good way to, to do that would have been with more personal thought and more preparation, Well, let's think about the great lengths that God has gone to to prepare you to receive the gospel. Because he has put an amazing amount of preparation into it. For thousands of years, he was sending messengers saying, this is who the Messiah will be. This is what you should be looking for. Then he sent John the Baptist. His entire ministry was a ministry of preparation, saying, be ready for the Messiah, the Christ. He is coming. And then God didn't just send a message generally to all people. Here is the good news. He sent his son personally to us, individually, to to bring the gospel himself. And God continues to work in the same way today. The Holy Spirit still personally, individually speaks to you through His Word, guiding you and convicting you and showing you your need for salvation. God continues to prepare people today to receive the message of His gospel. I mean, in obvious ways, like reading and studying the Bible, that will prepare you to receive the gospel. Going to church, that will prepare you. But more than that, God is coming after you. If you've ever had this feeling of longing for more, of emptiness, and you can't explain it. 
That is God preparing you. And this reminds me of the book of Ecclesiastes, where King Solomon was like the richest guy who ever lived. And he's like, I'm going to try to figure out what the meaning of life is. And he poured his life first into his occupation, and that didn't fulfill him. And then he poured his life into gaining more wealth, and that didn't fulfill him. He poured his life into gaining wisdom, that didn't fulfill him. He poured his life into pleasure, and that didn't fulfill him. And he said, all of these things were like chasing the wind. And I think all of us know exactly what that feeling is. It's to be chasing after something that ultimately does not fulfill us. It leaves us empty and longing for more. Don't you see what that feeling is in your heart? That is God preparing you to receive the best news that has ever been. That Jesus came to rescue us. Not just from our emptiness and our longing. Yes, he will fill that hole. But to rescue us from the eternal punishment for sin. To bring us into the true source of fulfillment and joy and satisfaction, which is the presence of God. And so God has been preparing, and it continues to prepare, people to receive the Son. So this is in one way that God uh, backed up this great claim about who Jesus is. Well, how can I know Jesus really is the Christ? Well, look at the example of John the Baptist. His whole ministry pointed to Jesus. His whole ministry was a fulfillment of prophecies given hundreds of years in advance. But God went even farther than that to back up this amazing claim about who Jesus is. Look now at verses 9 through 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, at first glance, this is kind of confusing because the Bible tells us over and over and over that Jesus was the only person to have ever lived without sin, that he was perfect and sinless. And this was necessary for him to be the substitute for our sin. So why in the world is Jesus being baptized by John? His baptism was a demonstration of repentance, right? Well, let's keep reading, and I think this will become clearer to us. So he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So this begins to help us to understand what is happening here, why Jesus was being baptized. It was not that he needed his sins to be forgiven. You remember what John said about Jesus? I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. So there's no indication of Jesus' sinning here. Instead, Jesus' baptism was intended to be a demonstration of God's pleasure for him, a demonstration of Jesus' perfect character, a demonstration of his sonship, and ultimately a demonstration of anointing. We say, okay, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Where was the prophet coming along with the oil to anoint Jesus to be the anointed one? And Jesus was not anointed with oil. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit itself. As we read about David's anointing in 1 Samuel 16, you got Samuel and the oil, and it's after that moment that the Holy Spirit rushes upon David. And what we see here is a greater anointing. 
he doesn't even need oil because the Holy Spirit itself descends in visible form to rest upon Jesus. Could God set his son apart in any clearer or greater way than to visibly anoint him with the Holy Spirit? And so John, Jesus was baptized not as a demonstration of a need of forgiveness, but as a demonstration of his anointing. This helps us to know what kind of son Mark was talking about. He's a son of God. Does that mean he's a king or a, a great philosopher? No, it means he's the son of God. The father spoke from the heavens. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is not someone who just has a special favor from God as a king or as a philosopher. This is the son himself. Keep reading. Verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So God has demonstrated Jesus as trustworthy and capable of being the Messiah. And now Jesus is demonstrating himself as trustworthy and capable of being the Messiah. How so? Well, in the Old Testament, the phrase son of God was rarely sometimes used to refer to the people of God as a whole. And when the people of God were in the wilderness and they were tempted, they failed and sinned over and over and over. They constantly complained and grumbled. We'd be better off back in Egypt. When Moses was gone for too long, they began to worship an idol. They failed the testing in the wilderness. And here, Jesus, as the true Son of God, he succeeded where we have failed in the past. He resisted the temptation, and he continued to live in perfect holiness, showing not just that God was pleased with him, not just having the Father validate his ability, but demonstrating it himself. So ultimately, this is how God backed up this enormous, audacious claim. God not only said Jesus is able to save all people, but God proved the Son as capable to save all people. God proved the Son as capable to save all people. This is a a hugely important moment in the life, in the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. This is the beginning of his public ministry. We know that the disciples were there because in Acts chapter 1, when they're picking a new 12th disciple because Judas isn't around anymore, they say, here's the criteria. It's someone who has to have been with Jesus from the beginning until now, from the baptism of John until now. And so the disciples of Jesus, or at least... I mean, the 12 were there in this moment, not necessarily disciples yet, but with Jesus when they saw the Spirit of God descend from heaven like a dove, Jesus being anointed by the Holy Spirit, and God speaking from the heaven saying, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. I don't know about you, but if I was needing proof to back up an audacious claim, that's pretty good proof. I'm willing to accept that this guy is not just a carpenter from Nazareth, that this guy really is the Christ, he really is the Son of God, and he really does have good news for all people. That's some pretty amazing proof. 
I mean, clearly the disciples were convinced by this proof. In the next passage we're going to study, Jesus comes and he says, Hey, come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And they immediately drop their nets and they go and follow Jesus. Now, out of context, that kind of just sounds like a Jedi mind trick. Come and follow me and I'll make you fish. Okay, Jesus, whatever you say. But that's not what's happening. What's happening is they saw Jesus anointed by the Holy Spirit. And they heard the Father speak from the heavens. And God proved to him that he was capable of providing salvation for all people. They believed this so fully that they followed him with their lives. They believed this so fully that after his death and resurrection, they were even willing to die for Jesus. They believed in the trustworthiness of the good news of the gospel because God proved it to them. And this is what Peter was saying. We read in 2 Peter, we don't follow cleverly devised myths. These aren't just made-up stories. These are things that we saw with our own eyes. The Holy Spirit descending on Jesus as an anointing. God speaking from the heavens. John preparing the way. It was undeniable proof that Jesus really is who he says he is. And so what we have to realize is that, yes, we are called to faith, but it is not a blind faith. It is not a foolish faith. It is a faith that is founded on the proof that God has given to us. Maybe a better word is trust. Who do you trust in? When your life is over and your eternity will be settled, either eternity facing the punishment for sin or an eternity in paradise, in God's presence, in that moment, who do you trust in? Do you trust in yourself? The good things that you've done? What would be wiser? Maybe to trust in the one in whom God was, is, and always will be pleased with. God has already told you who he is pleased with, his son. So trust in him instead, instead of trusting in yourself. So think back to those promposals. If you could imagine yourself in that situation being asked, and it was someone that you didn't really want to say yes to, but they went to all these great efforts. It was so personal. They put all this preparation into it. It would make you feel kind of bad saying no, right? Don't you see what God has done for you? Don't you see the incredible lengths that he has gone to prepare you to receive his gospel, to receive his son? He sent his son to leave the throne room of heaven, to be a Jewish peasant, to willingly die on the cross in order to take the punishment for your sin. He's done all of that to clearly show you and to demonstrate to you that he wants you to be saved. Not only giving you that message, but then proving that message is trustworthy. He's done all of that. And would you say no to him? Father, we're so thankful for your perfect and holy word. We're so thankful that you have called us out of the darkness into the light. We're so thankful that you 
not only sent us this good news, but you proved this good news as trustworthy. Father, I ask that you would help us to trust it. I ask, Lord, that you would work salvation this morning, that there would be souls in this room who will be transformed by the trustworthiness of your gospel, that they would turn in repentance from sin to your son, and they would be saved. Please do that this morning, Father, for your glory, for your honor alone. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, this is our chance to respond. And all that means is to do what the Holy Spirit is leading you to do. The Holy Spirit this morning is telling you it is time to be saved by the anointed one. And come and speak with me down in front. I'd love to show you from the scriptures how you can turn from your sin to Jesus and be saved this morning. Whatever it is the Holy Spirit is calling you to do, be obedient. Church, stand in obedience to the Holy Spirit.